Welcome to Greenlit, the Buffalo 8 podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Helderman, and each week we're going to dive into a different piece of content, film and television, and we're going to talk with some of the biggest names in front of and behind the camera as we dive deep into how they were financed, produced, developed, marketed, and the crazy stories behind how many of them got made. Welcome back to another episode of Greenlit. On today's episode, we're talking with Jeff Sackman. Jeff's the first president of Lionsgate Films, and then went on to found another company called ThinkFilm, which produced pictures like Spellbound and Murderball. And he's currently the co-founder of a company called Quiver Distribution. Bondit Media Capital and Buffalo 8 have worked with Jeff and his partner, Barry Meyerowitz, a number of times over the years on a film called Social Animals, as well as on a new film with Kevin James and Joel McHale called Becky. Join me in the conversation without further ado with my friend and colleague, Jeff Sackman. Welcome back to Greenlit. Today I'm talking with a friend and a colleague, uh, Jeff Sackman. So first up, Jeff, thanks for joining in the what appears to be the jungle. <laughs> that's, where I'm, that's where I'm calling you from. Uh, thanks, Matt. It's good to see you. Yeah, you as well. Um, I know we're going to frame this primarily around American Psycho, which um, we also spoke with your colleague, Mike Pasternick, about. And Mike had an amazing deep dive and, and backstory on uh, that piece of content. But I know your angle into it is quite different. And yeah. I think also take us through not only how was it greenlit, but also those early days of, of Lionsgate and then yeah. how important that was to those early days of Lionsgate. Great. Thanks. You know, it's interesting because 20 years has passed. And of course you speak to everybody, even if we were all in the same room and even if we were not particularly um, glory seekers, we had a great team where we actually operated as a team and no one was looking for self credit. But in the passage of time, everyone remembers the stories differently. And if you look at some of the credits of American Psycho, you'll see different familiar names, Chris Hanley. And so Ed Pressman had the rights to the film or to the book and had been trying for my recollection of the story is and had been trying for a number of years to get it made. And it came across our desk and, and Mike was head of production. I was running Lionsgate Films. Joe Drake was head of international and we operated as a, a true partnership. And, uh, we saw this and went, let's do it. It just seemed like a no-brainer. And only over time did you realize what the backstory and all the stops and starts it had. And I think that was one of the fundamental philosophies of us, when we, which we adopted from Andre Link and John Dunning, who were the owners of CFP, which is what became the base of Lionsgate, which is if you want to do something, you just do it. And you support each other. And if it doesn't go well, you don't point fingers. So, you know, we got our hands on the material. Mary Heron was already attached. I believe Christian Bale was already attached. And it was going to be about a $7 million uh, budget. And we're going back to the days of, uh, you know, the good old days of territorial sales, where every country in the world had its own unique distribution, independent distribution, independent film infrastructure. Mm -hmm. and uh, this film had a decent profile and we just believed we could sell enough to finance it and make it work and um and we never really turned back and there were you know some great stories along the way which i'm sure we'll get into the leonardo dicaprio phase 
which was phenomenal, fascinating, and something I'm very proud of and have used as a reference in numerous dealings in life, which is, you know, you could go down a path and you could deviate from the path. And if the deviation doesn't lead to the pot of gold or the rainbow that you expected, you can actually go back and get on the original path and keep going. Mm-hmm. And American Psycho with Mary Heron and Christian Bale was that. So walk us through, you know, Mike, Mike Pasternick in the other episode, we, we chatted with him. He noted, you know, Titanic comes out, Leo's the biggest name in the world. You guys go to, I believe, Rick Yorn and, and make an offer. And the goal sure. is try and get him attached. Um, I like, I like your lesson that you've taken away from it. And for those that don't know you, you're very much a reflective person and you're very much a contemplative person, but walk us through more of that story as well. And the part that you took away from it. So it it came with, as I said, these attachments, Christian Bale was recognized in the industry as a high quality actor. He was not the Christian Bale of today. Um, So we were going ahead planning to make the film and one of us, had a brainwave. And at that time, I think there was an announcement in the trades that Tom Cruise had $20 million salary. That was the highest salary anybody ever had. So he said, well, why don't we offer $21 million to Leonardo DiCaprio? He's coming off of Titanic. was the biggest thing in the world. It was a lark. Mike did what he did. He was in Rick Yorn's office, dropped the script, had a chat. The next thing you know, they say, yeah, he wants to do it. This is going to be his first film after Titanic. We go, and we had literally, this is probably 1997, and we had literally sold CFP into what became Lionsgate. Lionsgate had capital for a change and was this kind of cool happening indie company. Uh, We had Buffalo 66 uh, that year. We had another film at Sundance. It was a hot film. So we were like kind of this cool indie company. And we couldn't, of course, announce... um, Leonardo DiCaprio, it was a whole to-do. And we're real indie guys. We're not part of this Hollywood world where agents and managers have, you know, of of major stars. We're not dealing with those guys at that time. So long and short, uh, we go to Cannes. We're selling American Psycho. And we want to announce this in Cannes. So this would have been May of 97 or 98. And... We needed all the approvals in order to make the announcement. We wanted to make the announcement at the beginning of the festival. So I remember just scrambling, going to see Rick Yorn and the back and forth of the publicist and the press release. And this was a pre-internet days. So the trades were critical and the trades in Cannes, you know, three big trades come out every morning in every hotel lobby. And we finally got the approval on whatever night it was, a Sunday night, a Monday night. And the next morning, the headline in Variety is Leonardo DiCaprio um, to star in American Psycho. So this is us on the front line. So Joe's there running our sales operation. I'm there running around. And you suddenly, we're, we're celebrities. People are coming up all over the place. You know, to me, I always remember I was on a panel that day with Saul Zanz and Amir Male and a bunch of industry. The whole panel was oriented towards Leonardo DiCaprio and American Psycho. Wasn't the topic. And, uh, and while I'm doing that, Joe's sitting in his office fielding offers, which by the end of the day totaled $63 million. $63 million of foreign sales in one day. 
Japan, $9 million, Italy, $9 million, et cetera, $63 million, which is pretty much what the peak of a big film could do on a territory-by-territory basis. And that doesn't include North America. We said, we're not going to do anything in North America. We figured, we had a rough calculation that it would cost about $40 million to make the film with Leo's 21, et cetera, et cetera. So now that's May. We're exalting in all of our glory. Joe's taking his offers, signing the deals. And now we get back home and you actually need to show up on set one day and start shooting. But now we're in Hollywood land. So Leonardo DiCaprio is not going to work with Mary Heron. Who's that? He wants to approve the director. And now the game begins. So three, four months of Mike running around and it's Oliver Stone. And, you know, I forget who all the people were. In the meantime, we hear stories that not only is Mary pissed and upset, but um, Christian Bale had worked out for 18 months to get, you know, and we've all seen what he's done with his body for roles, um, which is just staggering. And, um, uh, and as you've seen in American Psycho, as it turned out. So anyway, so this thing is going on through the summer. And, you know, a little tidbit side story for me is at the Toronto Film Festival um, that September, Christian Bale was the star of a Jeremy Thomas directed film called All the Little Animals. And we were the distributors. And I'm running the distribution company. And there's a dinner. And who do I sit next to? Christian Bale. Does Christian Bale know that I'm the guy who purportedly did this whole Leonardo thing? And it was still up in the air. It still hadn't, you know, simmered down yet. And so it never came up in conversation. So I'm hoping he never knew. But um, anyway, so long and short of it, we got together at some point, meaning Mike, Joe, and myself, and, and, and said, in effect, we're on this roller coaster to nowhere. Mm. And it may happen, it may not happen, but we have no control over it at this point. And there were so many loose ends and so many uncertainties. And then the beach came along, and I think he committed to that. And, and we just said, you know what, let's get back on the path and let's make the film that was supposed to be made. And we did, and shot the film that fall in Toronto. And it's still incredible to me what a sensation it is 20 years later. Mm-hmm. And as you know, and as I was telling you before, you know, just oh well, we could talk about the distribution and release a little bit. But you know, as I, as I was telling you before, um, you know, what amazed me about this film, um, I didn't necessarily relate to it myself. I related yeah. to the marketing and commercial impact of it. Um, is that a young investment banker kid came up to me about 10 years ago and he wanted my autograph on a DVD. And I said, what? He said, you don't understand. This is the most important film to guys like me of my generation. And I looked at him and said, why? You know, it just, it just astounds me to this day. And another little tidbit of, you know, not quite getting all of this was, you know, the most memorable or referenced scene and then I'll go a little off color for another story. But the most memorable or referenced scene is the, is the uh, business card. Yep. And we're sitting in the theater in Sundance, the 
biggest, hottest premiere, the buzz and the people and the noise and the excitement. And we get into the theater and the film starts and the business card scene comes up and the place is uproarious. And I look at Joe and Joe looks at me and we both go, I don't get it. <laughs> they were going crazy over the fact that they were discussing the depth of the business card. So, um, it, you know, it's pretty incredible. But, you know, the, a little bit of the off color is on the drive to the theater that night. We had a big van and I was driving and about eight people in the van, including some actress from Toronto. And, okay, you know, she's in the film. Like, okay. And then put two and two together. And what was she in the film? She was in the threesome as the non-speaking recipient of tongues where most people don't think tongues belong. And I then created this backstory in my mind about here she's in Toronto and her parents and the family and the neighbors. and the, Oh, she's going to Sun. I have a film in Sundance. I'm going to Sundance because I have a film in Sundance. Oh, what film? Americans say, oh, I heard it's a big film. Uh, what part do you play? Uh, <laughs> I'm the tongue recipient. So, you know, and somewhere in a comedian's mind is a phenomenal consolidation of um, that's Hollywood in that story. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Well, I love it. I mean, they obviously, you know, I, what, what year did the film come out? Was it 99 or is it 99? 99. And 99. the day the film came out, so the buzz continued, right? And the film comes out and we get the afternoon grosses. And remember, we're a smallish independent company and we don't have big results on a regular basis. So when you get big results, you get excited. And uh, the film comes out and the first showings are sold out in New York and LA and it's huge. And I'm like off the, you know, just jumping up and down and we got a hit on our hands. It's going to be great. We're going to da 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 So I have a friend of mine and a fellow distributor whose name I won't mention and I call him up and, you know, we're doing what we normally do. And it's like, this is going through the roof. This is unbelievable. It's relaxed. It's New York and L.A. You know, it's not St. Louis. So we made a bet. And the bet was $15 million box office, $100 per million on either side of it. And I ended up having to write a check for $300. Okay. So with all the noise and all the excitement and all the success, it grossed $12 million bucks. Right. And it played like a really successful art film. Right. But then, you know, I asked when it came out, because I think what's really interesting about the interview with you in particular. So I was 12 years old or 13 years old when this movie came out. And those early teenage years, this movie was very much an off limits thing as a 12 or 13 year old. But it was this movie that you would, I remember where I saw it. Uh, I was in a friend's basement who had an older brother and it was you know, home video, home DVD and seeing the film and knowing that my parents were in finance, but we sort of grew up outside of the sort of bro culture of investment banking. Like that was never really the vibe I got from it. And that was the first time I, I, I feel like I watched something that took me years, eons beyond how old I was. But what's interesting about your career is that, so that was sort of this early touchstone of, I would say another film would be like a fight club where it sort of just totally captured a moment in time um, and, and will always be that moment in time for so many people. Yeah. Um, but then you, so you're, you were president of Lionsgate Films. Yeah. You then transitioned to Think Film. 
And yeah. the reason that's really relevant to me and the sort of linear where I want to sort of take the next step of this, you always had this entrepreneurial scrappiness with what Lionsgate was and which your colleague, Mike Pasternick said the same thing was you guys never thought like a studio. You yeah. thought like you did, you know, there's that great, you know, Jeff Bezos quote, every day is day one. And if you can instill that in the culture of the way people think, you can build a really interesting company. Yeah. You go and do think film. And you did a movie, you did several movies there, but this, this film spellbound, which yeah. I, I doubt it's going to be this huge thing that you know, tons of people listening or watching this are going to immediately recognize. I, I think, but you, I think you'd be surprised. It captured a different zeitgeist and it's amazing how well known it is. Yeah. So I was a, I was a freshman in high school, I think in, in Connecticut, uh, in an area where being in finance is what you do, not being right. in entertainment, not being involved in anything other than being a, being a quantitative thinker. And I had this freshman year English professor, uh, teacher, not a professor. And he had three posters on the wall of his, uh, of our English uh, classroom. And one of them was an Amelie poster, which I had obviously never heard of. One of them was a Rushmore poster, which I had obviously never heard of. And the other was a spellbound poster. And the Spellbound poster was this poster that looked like um, like it came out of a festival. Uh, there was a, like a, like a one sheet from a festival screening. And he was really my introduction into, like, I loved music and my parents were incredibly supportive about being in the arts and uh, being into the history of it and the whole thing. But the idea to sort of dive into the subculture of the explosion of what was happening in independent content, your career really tracked that. And it's interesting that now being friends with you and having worked with you, knowing that you were really a critical mover in that first with Lionsgate, then into Think Film. How did that transition happen? And then how did Spellbound happen as well? So thanks, Matt. Um, you know, it's funny because we all see ourselves a certain way and others see us a different way. And, and you know, I've always lived in Canada, but recognized that the U.S. was the market. So effectively, I functioned as an American. I used to have a line that said, we we're, you know, something like we're located in Canada, we think like Americans, and we you know, behave globally. So, you know, I always saw, and we broke into U.S. distribution in 94. We were a very small company. We'd been distributing Miramax in Canada. That was the lifeblood of the company, and they pulled it from us and gave it to our competitors because they paid a lot more money. They had just gone public. And so we were kind of stuck, and I said, well, let's just go and distribute in the States. It's the same fundamentals. And over the years, we realized, you know, and I did it a couple of times and doing it again now, that, you know, having your head office operation in Canada to distribute in the States is a very economically sound and also ideologically sound approach to this business. You don't get people who are caught up in the non-business parts of the business. So a lot less partying and a lot less, you know, silliness and and quite frankly, a lot fewer places to go to get a, another job. A lot, um, well, you, you were never going to be a recipient of one of those tongues. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well said. So, you know, so, you know, so I was always kind of because of my proximity and because I never bought into the, you know, recognition that publicity is a form of value and a form of currency and self-publicizing and self aggrandizing was not my particular strength people said to me um back in those days that you're referring to it's like doesn't mark Ehrman work for you doesn't tom ortenberg work for you why do i read about them all the time and i don't read about you and i was like 
I just, you know, it's just not my thing. So, you know, and, and again, it's all like, you know, it's, 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 you can look back and say, should have, could have done things some differently, but very comfortable doing it the way I did. Stay out of the mainstream in living in Toronto, um, operate in the territory that is the most lucrative in the United States, manage it like a business, manage your cost, et cetera. So um, Lionsgate changed. Um, John Feltheimer and Michael Burns effectively took it over and they were great to me and they made me a couple of wonderful offers to come down to the States and to LA or to take over the Canadian operation and joint venture it with them and, and both of those may have been okay, but I wanted to do my own thing. And so I had the opportunity to start Think Film. And, uh, and the idea of Think Film was just to be another scrappy independent with the motto effectively being, we do not have the capital to compete for advertising, for bigger movies. We have to have the smarts to compete by, you know, what I just used to call cutting through. And so it's edgy films that generate publicity in and of themselves. And it's provocative films. So when you look at, you know, Spellbound, that was one, which I'll get to in a second, but, you know, Aristocrats and Short Bus and Murder Ball. Like these were all products that titles and films that had cut through potential. And, um, you know, and I'll, and I'll use your question on Spellbound and, and sort of balance it with Murder Ball. So Spellbound was playing at the Toronto Film Festival. We were just starting the company. It was 2001. Um, it was our first festival. And we saw it and liked it. And I don't remember what we paid for them. I'm sure it wasn't much. There was no big documentary. It sort of launched the docs as a regular, normal theatrical film. Yeah. And Spellbound played like an intense edge-of-your-seat drama even though it was based on a knowable outcome. But it was just put together in such a fantastic way. And there's been you know, numerous films that have followed that format subsequently. So we didn't know that we had anything special. It just was a pure word of mouth, kept on getting better and bigger, and you know, ultimately grossed like five, six million dollars. But it really put not only us on the map, but we then you know, determined to go into the doc business in a more meaningful way. And, uh, and, and you know, and with a mixed bag of results, um, you know, one of, one of my favorite reference stories is Born into Brothels, which won the Oscar for Best Picture, which was a great documentary. And it had as a sub-theme photography. Uh, the woman who planted herself in the brothel world, the most, like, why would anybody from the first world want to do that with their time is beyond me. Uh, the, the conditions were so horrific. Mm -hmm. and, but she was a photographer and, and decided to spend seven years of her life and, and, and ultimately got the Oscar. So we're marketing the film. It goes out, it does what it does, and we're doing an answer, you know, in the DVD time. And we do a deal with Ritz Cameras, which was the biggest chain of camera stores, 1,300 stores. There's a photography theme to this movie. It won an Oscar. At every Ritz Camera store, there was a 12-pack by the cash register. And we had a deal with them. They would stay up there. They would only pay what's sold. They would stay up there for 12 weeks. 
So we needed to sell one copy per store per week. And we took back two thirds of the units. Wow. So, it, you know, so that, so that really like hammered home the idea of theoretical marketing versus practical consumption. Right. And, you know, it's like, we got the photography stores. It's the only DVD in the store. It's only 20 bucks. You're buying a $500 camera. We sold one third in 12. Wow. Yeah. So that's an aside. So, so Spellbound was a great experience. Murderball was a great experience with a devastatingly not great outcome. Um, because that documentary might have changed the world in so many positive ways and something just didn't click. So this would be an example of you could do everything right and the forces that be conspire against you and the forces are not physical forces. Murder Ball, we did perfect on every front. Saw four minute um, clip of the film. They needed an, another $400,000 to finish the movie. Very dedicated filmmaker. Been doing it for two years, running around the world, ran out of cash. We did the deal. We gave them 400000 Overnight, we sold it to A&E for $350,000. So we were nicely covered. The film gets finished. It's phenomenal. Seat of your pants, gripping, similar format to Spellbound in that there's a contest that you root for, and it's a historical known outcome, and it doesn't actually matter. And we play the film at Sundance, but we did a brilliant marketing stunt first, which is we showed it to all the volunteers two or three days before the festival started. So as people were coming in, all anyone was talking about was Murderball. And I was walking around with the star, Mark Zupan, in Sundance, and I said it was like being with Mick Jagger. You couldn't walk three feet without people stopping him. It was incredible. And the film plays, and it's a sensation. World premiere, Roger Ebert declares that we may as well stop the documentary vote right now. This is best picture, hands down. I get accosted in the parking lot by Sheila Nevins, who ran HBO's documentary, business. We had offered it to HBO. They passed and she berated the crap out of me for not selling it to them. It's, you know, sorry, you know, we sold it when we sold it. It could have sold for a lot more money had we waited. Yeah. And the marketing, the publicity, everything was phenomenal. Three-page spread in Entertainment Weekly, American Disability Association supporting and endorsing the film. The same year that they were not happy with Million Dollar Baby for uh, reasons in the film, their 11 million strong organization. You know, we had all sorts of stuff going, and the film didn't work. And March of the Penguins came along and won the Oscar. Yeah. So we grossed two million at the box office. I would have bet it would have done 20. And, uh, you know, and to this day, that's my biggest career disappointment because the potential, everything was right. And you look back and you think, what did we do wrong? Murder Ball? Is that an off putting title? Is disability having anything to do with a film off-putting to people both with or without disability? And as, as compelling as the lead character was, if you saw his image, he looks like a skinhead. Mm -hmm. And so with him as the front face of the poster in the campaign, it was that a turnoff? So there's the, there's the bookends with Spellbound. You know, yeah. two great movies, one worked brilliantly, one failed uh, I wouldn't say it failed miserably because you know on a on a business basis it just failed miserably on a 
Expectation. Expectation. So how long, I have a couple questions on ThinkFilm, but how long was that run? Uh, Because I know you sold it sort of just probably at the sort of just the right time, given where the world turned and, you know, wait, what what was, what was that run like? uh, And what led up to that sale? So I'll, I'll, I'll preface it with another perspective that I had over the years. Um, as I just read, you know, Averon pictures went down, their president or guy who founded it just got arrested. You know, and I've always said, I wish that when I started in 1985 and I was the distributor in Canada for most of the American companies at the time, Canon pictures, um, Baldwin, all these companies. And, uh, and I remember thinking it would be interesting to have a chart of distribution companies in the States that when did they start, how long did they go, and, and when did they end? And I think that list today from the time I started would be 150 long. Um, Goldwyn is still around. Uh, Sony Classics is, Sony Classics wasn't then, it was Orion Classics. But it's incredible how many companies come and go. And if you wanted to take it, you know, if you and I were sitting in your office chatting the way we do, I wanted to imagine how much money went through all of these distribution companies and disappeared into the great unknown. So, you know, so Think Film, you know, was another undercapitalized company. It's almost impossible to be properly capitalized. You either you know, you just have to have either access to a lot of money and you piss it away or you stay really small. There was a company called Strand Releasing. I remember they were around for quite some time and they still be. I think they still are. Yeah. Yeah. So small, niche, you know, operate from self-generated revenue mm-hmm. and just stay at that level. Then you could possibly exist. I think Roadside Attractions is a very impressive um, sustainable story, yep. um, and it's a, it's a it's a testimony to the guys who run it and how they run it. You know, they just stay within your lane. So, think film. We had ambition, and you know, and part of it, I think, is you know, reflects my views on life. But I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I like the movie business. I think we could do some really cool, interesting marketing publicity and find those films that other people won't touch. As I mentioned earlier, aristocrats, short bus, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they just, when I saw a cut of the aristocrats in the editor's screening room, I said, there's not anyone else who's going to touch this film. Mm-hmm. This could change our game. our highest grossing film. So, you know, the idea of think film and, and then the other thing I said, and we raised some money for think film, but not a lot few million dollars and I remember doing the pitch and I said the the concept of a distribution company is you have to stick around long enough for one of two events a hit or a sale or you're going to fail period Mm. Uh, unless you're those examples of the guys who just stay at their level and we're going to be big they're not looking to be big so the hit or the sale and think Phil you know we never got the hit we had a couple of nice little pops spellbound. And, and we also had a video company called um, Avalanche Home Entertainment, which I coined the brilliant um, copy line for. It's all downhill from here. 
Um, you know, and it was just pure exploitation, straight to video product, but that actually kept us alive. So again, we weren't just into the movie business. You know, we had the theatrical team that was, but we also had the business guys who understood the video is what kept us afloat. You can make you real money. P and A will kill you. Yeah, you got you got to you got to eat short term to live long term. Perfect. So that was the, um, the, the, the philosophy and we set it up right from the beginning. And the other thing is we, you know, I think film was set up as a build it to sell it concept from day mm -hmm. one, because you can't sustain. I just have that chart in my head. If it was ever created, if all those companies could only last two years, three years, five years, 10 years and collapse, you can't sustain Right. Mir Miramax was on the verge of collapse and they sold it to Disney. Right. Right. So they were the best. New Line couldn't sustain. They sold to, to, to Turner, which ultimately became Warner's. Right. So it's, you know, October films, art is that nobody could sustain, no matter how big they looked in the industry. Right. No matter, you know, how fancy the rooms they took at Cannes or Milan or wherever our festivals took us. So. You know, it's a tricky business. Startup costs, overhead costs, acquisition or production costs, marketing costs, all against some unknowable revenue stream. So Think Film, you know, did what it set out to do, either get a hit or get sold. So, you know, after five years, we just said, um, feels like the right time. And what people didn't understand, you know, on the people on the board, we had a couple of financial institutions who were, who had backed us and our numbers were not glowing from a financial institution perspective. And I said, it's not about that. It's about the platform. <laughs> and we built this platform. We have a cool brand. We were known for doing cool stuff. Somebody could take this platform and do more with it. And to be very honest, I thought there would be much greater interest than there was. We did have a couple of offers, but ultimately the best offer was to this rather um, unpleasant individual named David Bergstein, who was looking to build a international mega company using Wall Street money, which you know was interesting for me to see how that game was played. And this was in 2006. When the collapse happened in 2008, you realized that it was just moving. Like I said, I just learned a whole lot about my experience from when the world collapsed in 08. Hmm. So it wasn't real. It was just using money. People with money needed to deploy money. People with somewhat questionable ethics who knew how to extract that money from those who had to deploy it. Um, and luckily... And people said to me, actually, knowledgeable, good people said to me, you can't do business with this guy. You can't sell him your company. And I said, well, if the check clears, I'll stay in business with him according to my agreement. And if it doesn't clear, we'll just get back on that path right. that was there before. And the check cleared. 10% was held back. And five days before that holdback money was supposed to come out, uh, he sent a letter to the trust company and said they've committed fraud and misrepresentation and that money got frozen for a three-year legal battle, wow. which we ultimately got because, as I like to say, I was hoping it would end up in court because all I wanted to do is say, um, the owner of the company accused me, the CEO, of fraud and misrepresentation. 
And I continue to work there and I continue to have check signing authority. <laughs> right. Now it would have been the end. I just wanted to testify along and just to say nothing else. I love it. Right. Well, there's a, there's a New York Times article that uh, we read in preparation for chatting with you today that referenced Think Film saying that the alumni of you know your team there went on to become these incredible forces throughout the industry and you know what was it about that company what was it about that time uh, people that are all yep. over the place now doing awesome things yep. um, curious on your your thoughts on that well i think it's it's great and again i think we had a culture you know andre link who is my mentor and had the company called cfp which i joined and grew and then we ultimately sold it to what became lionsgate you know, he never coined it this way. He described it this way, and I coined it. And it was a horizontal um, org chart as opposed to a pyramid org chart. So I never felt that anybody was above anybody else. We all existed on a horizontal plane, and everybody had specific responsibilities along that plane. Some of my responsibilities were consistent with that of the person who sits on top of the pyramid chart uh, uh, org structure. Um, but you don't want to use that if you don't have to. I never wanted to be anybody's boss. I hate the term boss. I hate hierarchy. I hate formal structure. I like putting together a group of people who all like hanging with each other and want to accomplish a common goal. Hmm. And either that came through in who we hired or they bought into it or it was just in the ethos. But Effectively, that was it. And, and Daniel Katz, who went on to start A24 after leaving us and spending five years at Guggenheim, you know, I think is the best example of that. And his sidekick is David Fankel and other people that work for us work there too. And, you know, you don't read a whole lot about Daniel Katz in the trades. You know, he's right. not promoting himself. It's just let the company do what it does and achieve great things. The only and I think what they did, which is really impressive, is they had access to capital. But it was the same philosophy, which is find cool, edgy films that we could target, and we could do it differently than how everyone else is doing it, which is throwing a lot of advertising money. Um, years ago, as a quick aside, if this was a marketing one, I used to say I never understood newspaper advertising because we're paying in the art film, independent film world. You know, in the studio world, it makes sense. We're paying the same line rate and hoping one out of a thousand people go. It's such an ineffective path to our customers. Right. And we just did it like lemmings. And so, you know, I think one of the cool things that A24 has done is they don't do that. They target. Now, right. Yeah, again, we didn't have the same opportunity in those days. But so, yeah, so I think it's pretty cool, you know, that, that also the Lionsgate alumni, I mean, Joe Drake and Tom Mortenberg and all these guys. And I think a lot of it was the same thing. We never, Mike Pasternak, you know, we never functioned in a strict, uh, traditional hierarchical way. There was just do cool stuff without, you know, without ego as much as possible and um, be fair, be reasonable, be sensible. Yeah, and I think it's kind of nice to see that. Yeah. Well, I know you have a heart out here in a couple of minutes. So I just want to ask maybe one or two more things. Sure. You've you've now reinvented yourself yet again, which you've done you know, several times mm -hmm. in your career, which is awesome. And you have a new company, Quiver, with yeah. your colleague Barry Myrowitz. 
Yes. You've worked with Barry a bunch over the years, and you've both had these awesome uh, multi-chapter stories. Yeah. You see another opportunity, another market lapse, another area to take advantage of. So it's an interesting time. So Barry had a company called, so after I sold ThinkFilm, I basically went on my own for about eight years, and that's when I met you. Um, working out of my house, just doing deals, helping producers put financing together, setting up worldwide sales and, and, and other similar type things, activities. And I was on a lot of boards. Barry's um, uh, was called Phase 4, and ultimately he sold to E1, and he became the head of E1's. Um, and we, and we, I was on the board. It's a cute story, actually. I was on the board because we were friends, and one day he said to me, you know, I want you to join the board. And I said, okay. And he said, but I want to pay you so it'll seem like a regular thing, you know, like a, like a real job, not just as a friend. I said, okay. And he goes, how much do you think? I said, I don't know, $5,000 a month? Because I was thinking more like $1,000 a month. I said, okay. <laughs> I said, but if you're going $1,000 a month, I'm only going to invoice you twice a year. You know, I, I don't. I don't want to get a thousand dollars a month. So, you know. So I went on his board, and we're just good friends. And then I was doing my own thing, and he sold to E One, and he did not like the. I'm just a cog in this bigger machine, and they didn't um, uh, endorse what he thought was capable. And uh, uh, and again, you know, their their primary agenda was not independent films. And so after a couple of years, I said, let's just do this together. Let's just do more of what I'm doing. And, um, and timing is everything. The world changed. Netflix went from licensing more to manufacturing more. Sony Worldwide was a big customer of mine and sold them a lot of films. We did a lot together. And all of a sudden, they were doing a lot less of that, which is a whole other podcast about the ripple effects of the evolution of Netflix. Sony... Yeah output deals worldwide were curtailed somewhat by Netflix's evolution, which rendered their interest in my type of product somewhat less. Mm. Um, so we started to just sort of help put productions together. First year we did 11. Um, then we came up with this idea for Quiver Capital, which is to um, lend against Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and Showtime paper so that producers don't have to wait two years to get paid. We offered more competitive rates than some of our colleagues doing similar things. And so we started that business. And then we very always wanted to do the distribution business, which is essentially the premium video on demand. We don't want to go back into the theatrical business other than as a support mechanism for VOD. We think there's a attractive moment of opportunity. Now it's going to become much more challenging given the flow of new product, mm -hmm. but product gets manufactured somehow and it needs to find its way to consumers. And there's a number of companies who are effectively doing the same thing, Vertical, Grindstone, Saban, Screen Media, RLJ. It's all basically the same thing. It's not overly complicated. What's complicated is hitting the marketing right. Mm -hmm. And you saw the headlines, you know, Capone with Tom Hardy, you know, just did an amazing run this weekend. We have a great film coming out called Becky with Kevin James that hits two weeks from today. But our little marketing twist is that the drive-in theaters are going to play this film like a major league first run release because it has 
drive-in written all over it. The drive-ins are getting a lot of noise. We say, we've got this film. We could just put it out in a couple of screens as people do, but let's go bigger. So you're going to read articles in the next couple of weeks about the biggest drive-in release, uh, you know, first run drive-in release ever. So we're going to continue to do that. We're, we're, um, uh, you know, we were looking to get involved in, in pre-buying rights so that we could help the films get made and then control uh, its destiny. And so that's a distribution run. And then we started another Quiver company um, just a couple of weeks ago called Quiver Entertainment, which did a business deal that you would also find interesting on a whole different level. And it's just a it's film product, film and TV product. But it, you know, we, we bought a um, pile of assets out of a bankruptcy of a company yep. called Q Media, which has got you know bittersweetness to it because um, it's it's really sad to see. But we took advantage, we dove in, and we acquired these rights, and now we're going to exploit those rights and decide what to do when it becomes another platform for doing more and different things. So we're active and reinventing all the time and, and very proud of being able to continue to do that. And hopefully one day there will be another American Psycho on my resume because it's tough to think that, you know, you're crowning glorious 20 years old. Well, I mean, look, you I think think film is a, is a, is a crowning glory and being able to constantly stay relevant in this business. Yeah. I mean, I'm only you know, 32 years old, but I can say, I feel like I'm already on, multiple chapters down the road because of how fast this industry is moving with technology. Well, I'm always very proud of you, Matt. And I think you're going to continue to do great because you've got the right attitude and philosophy. And that's a core ingredient that you can't learn in school. Jeff, thank you again for carving out the time. I know you've got to jump to a call. Have a great, great weekend and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Matt. Take care, man. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Greenlit the Buffalo 8 podcast. For financing questions, feel free to contact us at Bondit Media Capital at info at bondit.us. For production, development, and distribution questions, feel free to contact us at Buffalo 8, info at buffalo8.com. We'd love to hear from you and hope you'll continue listening to the podcast episodes ahead.